The Akkad and Kokai Report, episode number 44. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Okay, well, hello and welcome to uh, the latest uh, episode of the Akkad and uh, Coca Report. Today, we have the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Fred Rincon. Um, Dr. Fred Rincon is somebody that I've known really well for the last, I think it's been seven or eight years now. He, he practices at uh, Thomas Jefferson Hospital um, and uh, he's a uh, neuro um, intensivist there. Um, Fred uh, got his uh, uh, MD from, uh, uh, from Columbia. He graduated in 1996. He went on to do, um, do a master's of science of uh, epidemiology, getting that in 2008 from Columbia University. He went on to do um, uh, get a, 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 another degree um, from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, this was in uh, bioethics in 2012. Um, he, he also also completed residencies in Lincoln Medical and Mental Health Center, the New York Presbyterian Hospital, and has done fellowships um, at, uh, at New York Presbyterian Hospital as well as Cooper Medical Center in Camden, New Jersey. He has, he's multiple board certified. He is board certified in <laughs> neurology, vascular, vascular neurology, as well as critical care medicine. So um, quite an accomplished uh, resume <laughs> that, you, that you have here, Fred. So very, very, very impressive. Um, and today we're talking about uh, some of the, or it's an extension of another episode, um, a very interesting episode that Michelle did. I was unfortunately unable to make it with a, with a neurologist from California, right? Dr. Schumann. Right. He's a um, retired professor from uh, UCLA. And and he and and, and uh, that particular episode focused on um, brain death and what exactly brain death meant and how um, perhaps the conventional approach to brain death um, uh, was more pragmatic than correct. <laughs> um, but Michelle, you want to tell us and give us a little synopsis of uh, what you and Dr. Schumann uh, discussed? Sure. Um... Just as a background, brain death was introduced uh, to the medical community uh, in 1968. Uh, there was a proposal um, by uh, people at Harvard, a committee of um, clinicians, neurologists, uh, ethicists, and whatnot, to come up with a, to declare uh, people who had, uh, you know, extensive and irreversible brain injury um, you know, no evidence of, uh, of brain function and no expectation that it would uh, change or recover to declare those people dead, um, even though they had certain other outward signs of life, like a heartbeat and, you know, being warm and, and that sort of thing. And the, um, there were two reasons uh, at the time um, invoked for doing so. One, uh, they, they, they said that it was... Um, um, that it, you know, it was actually quite ambiguous in that paper. On the one hand, they didn't call it brain death, but they called it irreversible coma, okay? So they wanted to tell patients that people with, uh, you know, if their loved ones were um, in an irreversible coma, that they should be declared dead um, in a way. One, because they thought at the time that the intensive care was was actually masking the reality 
of death, they saw that actually a complete destruction of the brain was actually a form of, you know, or essentially equivalent to biological death, right? And that the intensive care somehow was ma masking this, was, uh, mm -hmm. but, but actually there was not, a brain dead patient is a disintegrated patient. And the disintegration was not evidence to the senses because of the intensive care, but it was just a matter of time. And to spare the family the agony of waiting in hope, you know, we should declare those people dead and, um, and then withdraw the care. But of course, the other um, uh, argument or, you know, or the other benefit of, of uh, coming up with this concept of brain death was that organs could be harvested because that was the beginning of uh, organ transplantation and organs could be harvested and used for heart transplants and, and, and whatnot. So that was proposed, proposed in the 1960s, late 1960s. It took about 10 years for, uh, you know, the, the, the legislatures across the country to implement that idea uh, into laws. And finally, the federal government itself came up with the uh, Universal Declaration of Death Act in 1982 that essentially codified this into law so that if people are diagnosed as having irreversible complete cessation of brain function, so-called brain death, that that would be the equivalent of death um, uh, diagnosed by traditional, you know, traditional means, uh, meaning the, the absence of pulse and respiration. Okay, and at the time, again, they said that those two events biologically are the same, they're identical, that having, you know, a non-functioning brain is equivalent to having no pulse and being biologically dead. And um, so what, what's happened is that, you know, Alan Schumann, who was on the show on our podcast, you know, a few episodes ago, was very interested in that question. He was actually in favor of that argument, you know, that brain death is equivalent to, you know, biological death. But in the course of his exp experience and, pra and practice, he started to collect cases who for one reason or another were not, uh, you know, didn't have their uh, intensive care withdrawn. They were maintained on the ventilator and they survived. They survived for a long, long time, um, much beyond the expectation, which at the time the expectation was that, you know, the body is disintegrated and it's, it's in, in, in the process of dissolution. Well, a lot of these patients who were kept on a ventilator, at least some of them, could be kept on for years and years and not only be kept you know, in that state, but also show, show signs of biological integration, meaning some of them would go through uh, puberty, you know, if, if, they were, if, they, if they had the, this, uh, brain death, death, this brain death event uh, as ch children, they would go on through puberty. Uh, others would be cases of pregnant women who actually were able to gestate fetuses, you know, even though they were quote-unquote brain, brain dead, and therefore, in a sense, they were uh, a, a, a body in, in um, at least the argument was that they, they were a body uh, in, in process of dissolution. Well, mm -hmm. at the same time, they were able to gestate, you know, uh, a baby uh, to mm -hmm. term. And so he accumulated, you know, hundreds of cases, I think uh, 100 or 200, and, and published them in the late 1990s and publicly uh, made an about face uh, because he, he was a prominent defender of brain death. And then he said publicly, I, don't, I do not believe in this concept anymore. I think this is, uh, it's incorrect to say that brain death is equivalent to 
you know, biological death, if you will. And, um, and he attracted the attention of, of, um, of people at the time, but by then it was no longer at the forefront of medical debates. It was more in specialized journal, in neurology and so forth. And people, for the most part, I think, have accepted the fact that brain death is not the same as biological death, although there's still there's some debate about it. People, you know, hem and haw about it. And they say, well, maybe it's not biological death, but maybe it's no longer a person and we can continue to proceed with organ harvesting or we can continue to proceed to tell the families that essentially those patients are dead, uh, even though biologically it's not, it's not the same. And, uh, and, and that's essentially the, that's the gist of it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have anything to add, uh, Anish, to the, to, that, you know, to the conversation that I had with Dr. Schumann? No, it, it was it was it was a fascinating conversation. Something we don't uh, don't spend a lot of time thinking about. You just you know, I mean, I I don't do this a lot. And, you know, Fred is going to comment a lot more here, but uh, on it. But I, you know, I, I had a simplistic version as well that you know when the when when you met these certain brain death criteria, whether it be the apnea test or whatever the cold caloric test or whatnot, that I was like, all right, I guess you're brain dead, and uh, and that's it. You know, um, but. But Fred, I mean, I mean, this was eye-opening to me to hear, you know, Dr. Schumann's conversation with uh, uh, Michelle. Um, what are your What are your thoughts um, on all of this? On on the concept of brain death? Yeah, and you know what Dr. Schumann, you know, brought, you know what Dr. Schumann and Michelle are saying. I mean, is is there really such a thing as, you know, are, are we too focused on the definition of uh, what brain death is to to do yeah. things that are that we want to do, but that are pragmatic, you know? So, so when I talk about the topic, right, when I talk about the, uh, the concept of brain death, I usually uh, start my, my, my talk on my conversation with a slide. I don't know where I got it from, but it basically says, when are you dead, right? And then right. the answer is when your doctor tells you that you are dead, right? And that sort of like highlights the importance, right, of physicians in terms of, um, you know, arriving to the conclusion that somebody has, has died. Uh, and historically, you know, as, uh, as we have mentioned here uh, in this podcast, right, um, you know, uh, you were considered that when your heart stopped. And that was a concept that was sort of like, uh, um, you know, preserved and, and uh, you know, sort of like uh, defines, you know, the concept of cardiac death. You know, when you don't longer have a pulse, you know, and your heart stops and you die. But then, you know, um, uh, you know, the lingering of these patients in the intensive care units and in the uh, and the wards with this coma, right? Uh, right. We know neurological activity led to this, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, research, you know, by Harvard and some other investigators, primarily in France and in some right. parts of Europe, directed this definition, you know, of death by neurological criteria, and which right. is so I described by the UDDA, um, and 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 that's really what the discussion over the last couple of years uh, concentrates on, right? Uh, it's really uh, bring uh, death an achievable concept. Is that really a pragmatic concept, right? Right. Uh, to define death, and that's where the question is sort of like focusing on right now, um, uh, because the definition is very clear. You know, it's irreversible cessation of whole brain function. You know, we're, we're you know talking about death by neurological criteria right now, and I don't want to undermine you know uh, the definition. You know, it's the way that we practice. Um, we have a, um, you know, uh, expert opinion based way to arrive to the conclusion that the patient doesn't have a neurological function, right? 
But to one point, right, when, when, when I'm doing these evaluations at the bedside, right, can I really arrive to a conclusion that there is irreversible cessation of whole brain function? And that's where I have a problem. And, and if you consider how purists or, or attorneys, uh, attorneys that, that interpret the law, right, because this is a law, right, how you interpret the law, right, people really attach to the letter of the definition, right? So in any litigation, in any case that you um, litigate in front of courts, right, uh, attorneys really pay attention to what the definitions are and what the letters are, what the words are, what is the meaning of irreversible, irreversible cessation of whole brain function. And, and, and I also have a, a, a slide where people have interchanged, interchanged the, the, the term irreversible for permanent, for example. And those are two different uh, definitions in, in English, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon language, right? Permanent is different than irreversible. So um, just to give you an example, you know, uh, even for cardiac death, if I arrived to the bedside where a patient, you know, um, you know, heartbeat is sort of like, like, like slowing down and I see the flat line and then the nurses ask me to uh, pronounce the patient. And then if I wait, you know, a uh, couple of seconds and I see a flat line, I know that if I start resuscitation and if I start uh, CPR and eventually if I get a rhythm, if I, you know, shock the patient, I can get that heart back, right, to where it was before. That's what I call a permanent cessation of a function rather than a reversible cessation of a function where if I wait five to 10 minutes, right, I might not be able to get that heartbeat back. So it's the same thing for, with, with the brain, right? You know, are we doing these evaluations in a process of, of a dying brain where we still have some function, but it's minimal and we cannot test at the bedside with clinical exams as, as we do uh, routinely, right? And, and we cannot arrive to that definition of irreversible cessation, which means that the brain cannot get back to where it was, right? And, and it's of the whole brain. Um, so I don't think we can get to that definition. And that's where we have a discussion among bioethicists right now, right? That perhaps, you know, what we're doing um, does not fit uh, the definition. We may need to think about different ways of, of defining neurological death or death as a whole, right? And, um, and, and, and that's how I sort of like have or have arrived to this conclusion that we have a problem with the definition that is not pragmatic in the sense that we cannot, you know, um, achieve that uh, with the ways that we do um, uh, our, our evaluations at the bedside. So, so you're I saying that, yeah. So you're saying that these clinical criteria that exist, right? I mean, the apnea test, the, the, what are, I, I don't, I, I'm embarrassing myself here. What are the other things yeah. that you guys do? Well, your, uh, you know, you know, so, so to arrive to the conclusion, right, that the patient is brain dead, you have yeah. to satisfy three main criteria. Yeah. Patient has an irreversible and a, a, a devastating brain injury. Okay. that leads to cessation of neurological function, right? Mm -hmm. You must be in a coma that is explained on the basis of that, uh, of that injury. Two, you must have no neurological function. And the way that the law, uh, the law describes it, right, is whole cessation of brain, func uh, brain function. But the only thing that we test at the bedside is in reality the brainstem, right? There is no way of testing cortical function, you know, with a clinical exam. You know, just by definition, you're in a coma, your hemispheres or your articular activating system may be down. But the exam that you do at the bedside is just brainstem. This is why the, the British, right, uh, the concept of brain that is primarily, primarily focused on brainstem exam. And, 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 their, and their criteria is just based on the brainstem. It's not really based on anything else. And then three, you have to have 
a lack of response to a challenge of CO2 or what we call an appian test. So if you fulfill that criteria right at the bedside on the basis of clinical exam, you can say the patient is that by neurological criteria. The problem is, can you really say with those three criteria on the basis, basis of clinical exam that takes only five minutes, right? Uh, can you say that, it's, that, 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 that the uh, cessation of brain function is irreversible and it's for the whole brain? And the answer is probably not. I, for example, uh, see only, uh, I would say probably 30% of the cases, probably less than that, uh, evidence of, um, of pituitary dysfunction, like uh, um, uh, diabetes uh, insipidus, right? You know, that doesn't happen in everyone, but if you think about the pituitary being as part of the brain, right, then how can you say it is a reversal uh, cessation of whole brain function when there's still segments of the brain, even if they are vegetative and, and minimal, you know, in terms of, of, of the degree of, of function that they have, right, uh, is that you cannot really achieve to that conclusion. Um, they have done this cool uh, pathological experiments, right, where they have looked at uh, postmortem brains in these patients that have been cataloged as dead by neurological criteria, and they have found that there is still viability of some neurons in some areas of the brain. The, the, the question is, right, is that really meaningful in terms of, you know, can the patient really survive with those neurons that are still viable that don't have that much of, um, of, 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 of responsibility, right, in making you a human being? And the answer is probably not, right? So then the question is, you know, are you really dead, you know, um, when you have severe brain function and you're not able to return to your uh, state as a human being rather than, you know, trying to uh, sell me this idea, right, that when I do these three components of the neurological exam, I can say, yeah, your whole brain is gone. Therefore, your brain dead. My question is probably we need a better definition in the sense of how we define death. And that's like the liberal approach that, you know, I take on this, on this problem, right, is that perhaps the way that, 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 we, that we are trying to arrive to the conclusion uh, is it, not uh, ideal or, or truthful, <laughs> right? Um, perhaps I should say, you know, in a better way to a family or a patient, right? the degree of brain injury that this patient has is not compatible with meaningful uh, life as a human being, right? Yeah, there are still some areas that are preserved, but I don't think they will have any impact in the way that he was before. And perhaps for some people, that's, that may be considered as death. You know, if you ask this to, you know, societies, right, that are similar in the sense that of technological advancements, right? Uh, the law, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the society, societal, construes that they have, you know, like Japanese society or like the Belgian society, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're similar in the sense of the same sort of like, like principles that we share in terms of freedom and, 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 and citizenship, et cetera, right? Religious, you know, uh, beliefs as well. Uh, we are no different than them, but they have a totally different concept of, of death, right? And when it comes to organ donation, it's even, you know, uh, far more uh, apart. Uh, Oh, also, how, 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 does, how do the Japanese differ from us, Fred? So they don't have the same criteria of brain death that we have, right? Uh, for uh, some, uh, uh, I mean, you don't need to be uh, death, right, uh, by neurological criteria to donate your organs in Japan, for example, right? And uh, if, if you have severe brain injury, but, you know, you're not considered death under our criteria, right, uh, you can still donate your organs as long as, uh, you know, Who, you, you know, who's deciding have, that the, I mean, the patient the patients or the families, the families. Right? Yeah. There was a recent case published by the New York times on these, 
um, um, I think it was a toddler, uh, but it was an infant, right? Um, that has severe brain injury, right? And I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna discuss a little bit about another concept, right, that we have, which is the uh, debt uh, donor rule, right? Which is not a law, it's just a, a, uh, a requirement of when you can donate organs. So basically in the US and its jurisdictions, you can only donate organs as long as you're dead. That doesn't apply in other jurisdictions. People can donate organs right? even if they are not dead. So this New York Times you know, article on this um, uh, patient, right, uh, that happened to be a pediatric patient that has severe brain injury, could not be uh, cataloged as dead by any criteria, right? Because of that, couldn't donate organs. The family and primarily his parents were saying, well, we know he's not going to be the same person, right? He's not going to survive this brain injury. It's futile to continue any therapy with him or, or her. And uh, so why can't he donate organs? And then the answer is because he's not dead. And then they were like, but that seems to be preposterous, right? You know, we can help many people, right? We know our our, our son, I think it was a boy, our son is not going to be the same person, but, you know, in the process of him dying, can he be dignified in, uh, in a process that we are uh, proactive, you know, that we're in agreement with, which is organ donation. But it didn't happen because he wasn't dead. But had this kid been in another society, right, like, you know, some jurisdictions in Europe or even Japan, he could have donated his organs. He would have gotten to the OR. He would have, he would have gotten harvest, you know, for many organs and he would have died in the operating room. So Michelle, what do you think? Does this, do you think that the definition for um, death like, uh, should, should be a, a more pragmatic one that uh, individuals uh, decide, uh, you know, right. individuals and their families, uh, uh, what, you know? No, I'm, un- I'm actually, I'm uncomfortable. I'm comfortable with that. Uh, you know, if, if you start by saying, if, if you admit that, death is um, subjective, right? Then I can declare you dead, <laughs> right? You look a little dead to me. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I think that's very dangerous. And so I want to be a realist. I, I, want, I think that there is a nature. It's not death. The difference between being dead and alive is not in the mind of the people observing the event. It's actually out there in, in reality, right? It's in the world. There's a distinction between being dead and being alive. And, and I think it's important um, for us as, doc- as doctors to, to respect that uh, reality, right? But um, I, I think, Fred, you're, co- you're correct that, you know, in many different cultures and even in the U.S. right now, we, are, um, we seem to be comfortable with making death a little bit of a judgment call, you know, where we decide that somebody is, you know, sufficiently injured to be declared dead, um, but I, I think the first thing is that w- w- if we're going to go that route, we should make it clear. But right now, the law actually doesn't say that. The law says that if if you fulfill these neurological criteria, then you're really dead, biologically mm-hmm. dead. Yes. So I think that's uh, that's that's wrong. That's wrong. It should be corrected, and then we should be honest with with patients. And as you said, Fred, I think you know maybe some will say, well, you know, yes, we should still. You know, if if the the patient has irreversible you know brain damage and you know uh, he should be or she should be allowed to die and have the organs donated, but I think even here we have to be careful because you know 
you know, who are we, even, even, even parents or families, who are they to decide that yeah. somebody can be, because it's the process of organ donation that will kill the, the human being, right? So it's a human being. Only if they're, only if they're, the, it'll and, kill only if they're not, if you, if you don't think they're dead, meaning if, they, if you, if you consider them dead, right. then. Right, right, so, right. So, so this happens, you know, I mean, uh, Michelle, if, um, if I have a, if I have a, if I have a large stroke, um, um, I mean, uh, who you are is, is different. I mean, who I am, I mean, who, I, I essentially died with that stroke, meaning I am now a different person, right? So if I say right now, if I say right I mean, now. I say right, but I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, if I say right now to my family and friends um, and, and, and to, you, to, you, to you two witnesses here that, um, <laughs> you know, um, you know if, if, I have a, if I have a large stroke and I'm not the person and I can't do a podcast, uh, you know, Michelle cannot whip me to do a podcast Monday and Thursday every day. If I'm not able to do that, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, be sustained on, you know, any life-sustaining type of therapies. Why, why would you not want to respect my, um, my wishes? Yeah, no, that's different. We don't have to sustain you. You can certainly re refuse life-sustaining therapy and uh, be, be allowed to die, right? And you can go on and then die and then you will be truly dead. But you cannot say, you know, because my brain is not functioning, then I'm no longer myself. That's a contradiction in terms. It, it's nonsensical. Or if you want to say that, then, you know, what uh, keeps you from saying, well, you know, I'm really a kangaroo right now. And, uh, <laughs> and I want to be, you know, treated as a kangaroo. And, well, here's... And Here's the problem. The problem is, and you know, I've seen this happen more and more now. Actually, as the neurointensivists have gotten more involved, I mean, neurointensivist as a specialty is something that's really taken off in the last five, six, seven years. Would you say? Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. I mean, there's like tons of neurointensivists that were, you know, we never saw them before. Before it was like the Mickey guys, you know, who would open up the neurology book every time somebody would come in, <laughs> or the neurosurgeons would be managing it. Now we have a dedicated neurointensivist and. With that, I've seen uh, I've seen neurointensivists fanning out to do consults in other intensive care units. So whether it be the medical intensive care unit or the cardiac intensive care unit related to uh, patients presenting with uh, uh, with cardiac arrest, right? So they, pre they present with cardiac arrest. There's significant downtime. Um, they're they're intubated. Um, you know, middle aged person on dialysis as well. Uh, you know, there's organ dysfunction, multi organ dysfunction. And, you know, you're, near, you're coming to this decision about, well, now it's been more than five, six days. The patient is still, the patient has clearly suffered a significant anoxic injury. And people want to punt the decision to someone. And the, the, the places they're punting the decision to right now are, I think, in terms of, well, what's the neurologic prognosis? What should we do? Should we keep going? Should we stop dialysis? Should we trach and peg? You know, what's the neurologic prognosis here? Is this person going to, you know, in, in, in six months be, you know, walking? coming back, walking around. And um, I, I think if you go down the route Michelle uh, is leading us to, I think what's going to end up happening is a, a, a vast number of patients uh, traked and pegged in minimally conscious states in nursing homes. And I don't think that that's what those individuals would ever have wanted for themselves. Right, but the, the problem there is not, uh, it's not because of our definition being wrong. It's because, um, you know, the, the, there's a third-party payment system that uh, enables uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. the, the other way to do it is say, you know, to tell to families, you know, this is the case. If, if, uh, if we didn't have this, uh, you know, these welfare programs, you know, throughout, uh, you know, all developed nations and, 
families will have to decide. Families will have to decide: Do we have the resources? Do we have the personal resources to continue this when there's a lot of hope? And instead, you know, we have a family to raise. We have kids that need, you know, education and so forth. And, and this this patient is very ill, but we don't have the resources to keep them going, and we're going to let them go. And and there, I don't think there's anything immoral about that. I think that's actually perfectly moral. But then, but then you'll have people that can pay more. Um, obviously, yeah. folks that can't pay will. I mean, how, how, that no, I don't think. But I don't think it would have anything to do with with uh, wanting to pay. You know, the the whether people are are, are attached and want to um, use disproportionate. You would call the use the term disproportionate means to keep a human a human being alive. You know. Uh, if if they have the means and they want to do that, they can do that. But even if they have the means, they may not wish to do that. They may say, you know, we have the means, but you know, those means can be used for other to other ends, and we choose not to use them to that end. And we're going to let, you know, our 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 brother, our sister, or mother, you know, we're going to let right. them go because they've had a severe injury, and we're going to let them go, and they're going to die, and we'll bury them, and then we'll yeah. that'd be the end of that. And I don't think there's anything immoral about that. But but then you're you're not really deciding on whether or not to sustain life based on probability this person will get better or not. You're you're making that decision purely one of ability to continue to pay for this person, right? Well, no, essentially, both, at some point you run out of resources. Together. Right. I mean, they're both together. You make a judgment. This is. I mean, if it's a big stroke and, you know, we know, I mean, this is our state of knowledge today is that you, you're not going to recover or the patient is not going to recover. You make that judgment and then you say, well, that's our best judgment and we, we, we cannot, you know, expand, uh, you know, uh, use, use uh, disproportionate means to, to keep that uh, person alive. We're going to let them go and, and let history and nature follow its course because this is really what you're doing. You're letting nature follow its course nothing immoral about that or you say well i have i have the means to keep that person alive and i'm going to do it but i'm not going to burden others i'm not going to burden society or or the taxpayers and i'll do it at, uh, you know with my own personal resources and you can do that as well and i don't think that's i think you know i think there'll be a mixture of of uh, of those two decisions fred, uh, but that would be yeah oh, sorry fred what what do you yes. um what 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 do you think about my concern that um <laughs> uh, making making it now that you can't even say based on apnea test and severe injury that somebody's brain dead uh, or sorry somebody's dead. Um, if you if you make that gray, are you are you worried like I am that uh, we'll have you know we'll, we'll expand the number of um, you know decrepit uh, I shouldn't say decrepit I mean expand the number of minimally conscious folks in nursing homes that uh, you know is, is is that something that no, I, 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 at first, I don't think we cannot say uh, somebody is dead by neurological criteria with the current criteria that we have. I think we, we, we can do that, right? right. Uh, um, I know I, I just want to clarify that I didn't, uh, you know, want to mean that we, we cannot. What we cannot do, right, is to arrive to that strict definition that is pres prescribed by the law, which is the reversal decision of brain function. That's what I'm saying is that, you know, I feel uncomfortable saying, there is this irreversible cessation with this clinical yeah. exam that I'm doing. That's that's the, the first right, right, but but by right. right, but by saying that, by saying that, mm -hmm. well, I don't know if we can totally say it's irreversible. If you tell a family that, you know, I mean, what's what is a non-medical layperson family going to do with that information? They're going yeah. to per, say go, you know, keep going. So 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 that's 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 the uh, the problem that we have with the. Uh, 
with the law is that for some practitioners like me that have this philosophical, um, you know, uh, a problem, right? Um, it, you know, we, we, we feel that, you know, we are not, you know, and this is what, why you need to be careful with, with, with this sort of like, um, um, you know, uh, criticisms or critiques to the way that the law is written is that we are undermining, right? Um, you know, the trust from the society on the way that we uh, perform, right? Uh, our, our diagnosis of, of that binary criteria. But the reason why we're doing it, right, is perhaps to satisfy a societal need. You know, it's not just organ donation, it's also closure, right? And it's also a uh, financial interest that, that we have that, that, you know, that cessates when you say, or, or ends when you say, um, you know, the patient is dead. So um, I, I, the, the criticism that I have is the technical criticism. I think that the concept of brain dead, right, in my mind, you know, means it's just a terrible uh, brain injury that is incompatible with any meaningful type of life, right? And, and, and that's sort of like the idea that I have when, when, when you examine these patients and they're totally devastated, right? They don't have any function whatsoever, right? I don't care if there's just a little bit of function in the retina or in the Yeah, last, but, but Fred, why, yeah. Why, is that, why is that less meaningful mm-hmm. than somebody who uh, is in a vegetative state without having, fulfilling the criteria for brain death? What is that? Uh, let's, why, why is it less meaningful? I mean, because if, if you say that brain death, you know, is, is uh, there's no meaningful... Um, you ability know, to recover. Ability to recover. Right. It's also true of people within a vegetative state, right, and or minimally conscious states, you know, who don't mm-hmm. meet brain death criteria. Are you going to say also those are, are you know, uh, should be declared dead, right? No, I'm not. Or, I'm not saying or, that. Or, right. right, but I mean, or, or they should be declared. So, you know, because there, there's no, there's no, um, there's no demarcation between degrees of severity of brain injury. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so where yeah. do you draw the line as to what, what is meaningful or not meaningful? Right. Exactly. I mean, so, so, right. so that's that's the concept that is, you know, extremely liberal. Right. You know, uh, that, 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 that has some problems with uh, with some practitioners. That can we allow right, the person itself to define, you know, that sort of like level of, of what people would consider, you know, death? It doesn't have to be on the basis of. Of neurological criteria, it could be on the basis of functional status, you know, and, and that's the liberal concept, right? That terrifies people like you, for example, right? I, it does. I mean, I think it, well, it doesn't right. terrify. It doesn't terrify me, but I, I think it's wrong. I think it's. Uh, I mean, it does terrify me in a sense, but but I know we do it already. We do it, you know, in many different ways, and I think it's wrong. Um, well, but Fred, uh, what do you think about Michelle's? Um, uh, not not solution per se, but Michelle's approach to this would be to say, look, I mean, you know, the problem here is that third party systems allow this kind of indefinite uh, mm-hmm. support of these of these folks, and uh, we should, you know, if we didn't have this third party system op- operating, kind of sustaining um, uh, these devastated um, folks, training your patients, yeah, um, then you know they'd have, eventually they'd have to make a personal decision and say, look, you know, either we support our family or we continue to pour resources into this this other you know this 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 thing. Do you, do you, are there any ethical issues uh, with that approach? I don't I don't think there are any uh, uh, ethical issues. I mean, uh, healthcare is driven by uh, uh, the payer system, right? And and this is why practicing in different jurisdictions, uh, you know. It, 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 you know, it's different, but you know, I always have this concept about uh, about ethics. You practice ethics according to the jurisdiction that where you are. So, 
it would be extremely unethical, right? With the, the, the current definitions that we have in the United States to say, you know, what you're saying. But if you move to, uh, to India, right? If you move to South America, right? Um, you know, some individuals will say, you know what? Our grandma just died. She's in a vegetative state. She's not the same person. She's dead to us, right? She never wanted to be in this situation. So enough is enough. Yeah, we want to feed our family. And today we are stopping, you know, medical interventions. And, and that's a total different definition of death, right? That is based on societal needs, you know? The societal needs that we have here that makes it define death in different ways, right, are different, right? We need to define death for insurance issues, financial issues, for, yes, closure to the family, and then finally for um, uh, this, you know, uh, uh, organ donation, uh, so, which is, yeah. you know, if so, we, yep. So, Michelle, your argument rests on, 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 uh, <clears throat> on utilitarianism, on, you know, net, net good. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, but I hear what Fred is saying, and I, and I think he, he's correct in his uh, sort of sociological, you're correct, Fred, in your sociological mm -hmm. analysis. But, but really, that's, that's not, um, I mean, again, I go back to, let's, let's be realistic. By realistic, meaning let's call, you know, uh, let's call the cat a cat, <laughs> and a dead person a dead person. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, 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 because if if you start to say, well, you know, our ethics are going to be relative to our environment. Well, if the law changed, we're going to have different ethics. And if we, uh, I, th I think to me, that's problematic. I think the law should reflect reality. Our ethics should reflect reality. I think we should, you know, understand what, uh, and certainly something as fun fundamental as that, as that, you know, the, the notion of life and death, um, it's it's in, it can be picked up by so one living organism can identify another organism as being living you know it's extremely conserved across all species a baby can make a distinction between something that is dead and something that is alive extremely extremely precisely you know much more so, I mean, it's, it's one of the most conserved you know uh, uh, biological powers across all species but yeah here here we are you know in the 21st century or to late 20th century saying that no we can we can play with that definition because if we play with the definition of death we really are playing with the de definition of life right so we're, we're saying that life can be you know um determined a little bit by consensus by convention that sort of thing and i think that's bad that means we you know we we can decide, we can judge who we can declare sub, in a way either subhuman or non-human or non-existent. And uh, I think that's really highly problematic. I know. And, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the, 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 the example that I have, right, of how different, um, you know, jurisdictions approach this problem is just the ALS patient, for example. You know, the, uh, uh, the patient that, that has ALS and is in a terminal uh, uh, situation and you're seeing these case reports more and more, you know, where ALS patients are actually defining when their, their time of death is, right? And how, uh, uh, you know, the expectations are going to be. And um, a lot of those people are like, like saying, you know what, I'm dead. I cannot do anything uh, I was doing before. And these are my, uh, my wishes, right? So right. It, it's a philosophical definition, right? And I sort of like get it, right? No, it's it's, it's not a philosophical. It, it's a figure of speech. When they say I'm dead, it's a figure of speech. Mm -hmm. They're expressing, uh, you know, a wish. But you cannot say I am dead. That's a contradiction in term because when you're dead, you don't say I, right? So, <laughs> so when they, when they say I'm dead, you know, it's it's a wish. 
And then, you know, society here, we've decided to grant them their wish, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But it's not, it doesn't reflect a, you know, a clear cut, very strong biological reality. And, uh, and, uh, and that's my beef with it. That's my beef with the whole thing. That's my beef with, <laughs> yes. with a lot of, uh, you know, the, the bioethical community getting, you know, playing along with these uh, redefinitions of things, uh, you know, sort of willy nilly you know, to, again, to adapt to, you know, they say, well, you know, we need, we're a modern society and therefore we have to, <laughs> you know, our ways, you know, it used to, it's, it's medieval to think about clear-cut definitions. No, clear-cut definitions are in reality. They're not, we don't make them up. They're, they're out there. I mean, we need to conform to that. Um, otherwise, a lot of unhappiness ensues. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is a great, good, good conversation. Clearly, clearly this is, um, Certainly, there's a lot of debate it, about... Uh, it's, it's fascinating, right, to think about death, you know, from the thermodynamic principles of entropy, right, to the philosophical, uh, you know, definitions of, uh, <laughs> of death, right? I mean, and, and, and they, they, you know, you have these opposing sort of like, uh, you know, challenging views, right? Um, and, uh, but I just, I just want to comment, you know, uh, on... On, on these definitions of death by neurological criteria, right? They're gonna get challenged more and more uh, because of this lack of, uh, of accuracy, right? La lack of right. sensitivity and specificity. And core systems in, in, in states are actually challenging this, uh, this concept. And right. And, right? And, and I think uh, it's- I wanna, I wanna make a comment also about yeah. the apnea test itself, which has, you know, is being challenged. And, hmm? you know, because, uh, I mean, suppose suppose you're not sure if the patient is uh, quote unquote dead or alive, and then you do an apnea te apnea test. Mm -hmm. But an apnea test is not benign, mm -hmm. right? Do you need to yeah. to get informed consent? I mean, you're going to let that patient, you know, who might have a little bit of residual brainstem function, you're going to yeah. expose them to lack of oxygen for two or three minutes or however long it takes. Correct. To do that. So all of these are are, are quite problematic, and I think you're correct. Um, in terms of the scientific definition of life, there's no such thing. Yes. Um, I wrote a paper on um, I wrote a paper on brain death, which you know we'll put on the show notes. And in, in uh, I have a reference in that paper in, in my process of uh, researching it, where I uh, there was a symposium of scientists uh, in two thousand and eight or two thousand and ten uh, that took place um, in France about really how to define life, which was important for certain fields of biology. Um, uh, certainly for what's called astrobiology, where they're looking for, you know, <laughs> if life exists in uh, other planets, and also for, you know, evolution, you know, how did life emerge, um, you know, on Earth. And there's absolutely zero consensus. I mean, you have hundreds of different opinions about how to define life, which is a real problem for those scientists, because how are you going to, you know, recognize that you've found life, you know, on, on Mars or somewhere else, if, if you're not sure what you're looking for? Right, so so there's no definition of life because, at least not according to reductionist principles, uh, on which frequently science bases itself. You know, I mean, there's there's sort of a um, uh, you know a marriage of convenience between reductionism or mechanicism, if you will, and and uh, and, and science. But the bottom line is that it is a philosophical question if you're going to study it philosophically, and it requires some kind of philosophical a philosophy of nature that can take into account that real distinction between living beings and non-living beings and and the traditional reductionism mechanism atomism of you know that we're sort of familiar with 
can't can't do that. It really does not have any way to to make the distinction between what's a living organism and what's not a living organism. So, but it's 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 fascinating. Um, I I, um, I really. I think I encourage doctors to think about this more. I think it's very important because, you know, we're, we are the arbiter of that question, you know, uh, yes. uh, ah. all the time, right? So, ah. so, uh, so it's important for, for us and not, not leave that to the specialized bioethicists who are out there and, and coming up with their, their theories. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're important, of course. I mean, it has to be a conversation. But, but for us, we, have, we live that reality all the time. And then we are the ones conveying that information to the patients. So, well, so perhaps if we take our, 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 our duty to the patients seriously and to their families, we should, we should pay attention to that question. Well, perhaps, we, perhaps we shouldn't. I mean, we've set ourselves up as the arbiters of what is death and what is not death. And, and, uh, well, we, we, we don't, well, that's right. But we're not the arbiter of, of de defining what death is, but we are, we're the arbiter of recognizing it. You know, people you know, come to us, say, can, you, can you tell us, can you tell us? Well, no, I think they should, because we are the one who can, we have the experience, you know, we deal with sick people who die, so we have the experience, so we can say, yes, we, we recognize that X has happened, that, you know, this body here is no longer alive, it's dead, okay, that's, yeah. you know, so, so, so that, that's our job, we have, we have to, uh, to assume that responsibility, um, but we shouldn't, if, if that's a difficult, puts us in a difficult position, we shouldn't get out of that position by redefining what this is and saying, well, let's yeah, do but, it mm -hmm. in a way that's uh, most comfortable for society. Yeah, no, no. It's not that I don't appreciate the, um, you know, the, the ALS story. And I mean, I, I, you know, as a, as a resident, I had a, a very close friend who had a, a sister who had um, muscular dystrophy. And it was just an amazing story of, you know, severe muscular dystrophy, just massive wasting and, uh, you know, <laughs> life expectancy should have been 12 or 13 years, but, you know, she lived till she was 34, 35. And those last four or five years were, you know, incredibly tough. And I remember thinking multiple times that, you know, what is the, you know, what is the value here? You know, I mean, there was complication after complication because all these peg tubes and infections at the peg tube sites and, you know, eventually a pacemaker right. was required. And I mean, it was, it was, I mean, you know, maybe 200 days a year spent in a specialized children's hospital I mean, it was, it was, it was brutal. And, uh, and to me, to my value system, right. Uh, as you know, as a guy who was running around trying to, as a resident, I was like, you know, what, 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 is, what are we doing? What's going on? But then, you know, I would see her on, on, um, on her birthday and she would be smiling, enjoying life. So happy. And, and, and she was dictating and guiding a lot of her care. Um, because of course the terribleness of muscular dystrophy is, is that your mind is completely intact. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I recognize and beyond that, that you're, you're right. Anish, and, but beyond that, I'll say, even if somebody's in a coma, brain dead, yeah. and you say, well, what's the value of that? I don't want to be that person. But then you don't, you don't pay attention. I mean, if you pay attention to what's happening around that person, you may have families that now come together to help out. You may have caregivers, you may have reconciliations. So, you know, to judge the meaning just by looking at this no, one no. being in isolation, and so, I, I mean, I, 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 uh, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm just going even beyond yeah. that. No, no, but what I, There's a right. lot of things that are going on. So that the, right. the value of a life cannot be just simply judged, you know, uh, right. on narrow criteria. Right. I mean, there's, you know. Right, but what I'm saying is, is that we, as the physician who has met this person for 10 minutes and Fred is doing, uh, you know, a five-minute uh, exam on to decide on whatnot, we, may, we are not in a, a good 
perhaps we're not in the best position to decide on. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you're right. So I'm saying on, on, the, on the question of value, on the question of meaningfulness and value. Right, because it's yes. so individual and depends. It goes from person to person. It, it depends on culture. You know, a Japanese individual. Is, so it pushes back against what, I, I don't know, this idea of when, you know, what is, what is living and what is the value of continuing to live, I guess. Whether or not you want to say, you know, this is life, this is death. We've crossed this, 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 this line, this arbitrary line that we draw somewhere. Uh, no, it's not arbitrary. That's what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's not arbitrary. So I, I want to, to make actually our life simpler because, you know, if the families come to us and say, is this meaningful or not? Then we say, you know, we can't say. It's not for us to say. It's not, it is for life. you to say, right. So. Right, it's, it's for, for, for you to say. If you, now you're responsible for your, your, your loved one who's very yeah. sick, and it's for you yeah, to say. Yeah. But for us, it's for us to say if this person is dead or not. And, you know, uh, right. it, it, that's not a dead person. That's so a living, saying, it's yeah, a living should, human being. Yeah, we should biologically, yeah, we, yes, we, right. yes. Right, right, so right. I'm, I'm trying to, to make, make things actually clear cut. I, I'm trying to avoid this, the grayness of things and, and and you're right because we're not in a position we, we don't know right. all the circumstances right. wow. so and, and, and part of the problem right that that i see also right is that as physicians right we think as that as an um as an unnatural thing right we we we've been trained right in this sort of like uh um you know mentality that we need to preserve life right and and i agree with that concept right but we fail to have the discussion with patients about death as a regular, natural process, right? I mean, nobody lives forever, as much as I, <laughs> I, I love that song by Queen, right? But um, the, 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 the problem is that we never face uh, with families or, or patients, you know, uh, you know, hey, let's have a discussion about that, you know? What, what do you think about it, you know, when the, your time comes? You know, what, what is death for you, you know? What is the meaning of... Uh, of and organ damage, you know, what is the meaning of futility? We never have those discussions with family, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, no, so uh, absolutely. So, um, it's a great discussion here, uh, guys. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap up our ending. I, I told Fred 40 minutes and we're like 10, 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so, it's a fantastic discussion, Fred. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope uh, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to have you back on to talk about some other stuff too. Sounds good. Yeah, All right. anytime. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Good night. All right. yep. See you guys soon. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.